Hello and welcome to Fans, a podcast hosted by me, Sachin Nakrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about, well, being fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Arsenal is writer, blogger, podcaster and all-round A-star gooners, Tim Stillman. Tim, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Thank you for having me on. No, pleasure. I was, um, when I was drawing up my list of people to get on this podcast, you were, you were very much at the top of, top of the list um, of people I wanted to come on, and you've come on nice and early as well, so I'm um, greatly appreciated. We tried to do this a bit sooner, but for reasons we'll come on to very soon, uh, your schedule's been a bit busy and a bit tight. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, We'll come on to that very shortly, um, but, it's, um, but yeah, no, it's great to finally have you on, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, and let's talk about that. Let's talk about your schedule, and your life's obviously turned upside down recently because you, think, because you became a father. Yeah, that's right. That's right. My little girl is um, she's going to be a month old um, tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of a bit of a well, I say a bit of a whirlwind. Obviously, like we didn't we, we knew that my wife was pregnant, so we've, we've been quite well prepared for it. But um, yeah, like the, the whole, I guess, pandemic setting um, has made it quite interesting. But in, in a way, it's kind of made it, I guess, easier just because we've been at home all the time. Um, but yeah, yeah. So um, our, our first one, um, and you know, I'm I'm 36 now, so I guess you could say that's quite late to become a parent. And uh, yeah, it's it's but it's been wonderful. Still in that kind of lovely first few weeks phase, where really all they do is eat, sleep, and poo. And um, you know, it's it's they're fairly low maintenance at that age. I think the challenges are, are probably in the post. So, so you've not wanted to rip out your tired, useless eyeballs yet? Because I remember when our <laughs> daughter was born, zero sleep for about a month. It was horrific. It, it, it's been all right, actually, because she does, you know, she sleeps like 12 hours a day. It's just she doesn't sleep from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. like, like yeah. most of us. So, like, yeah, I mean, it's getting up a couple of times in the night. Um, obviously, my wife feeds her. I try and, like, help and change her and stuff like that. But to be honest, it's not, you know, I, I don't sleep that much less than i did it's just i sleep at slightly different times now i'm incredibly jealous of you yeah it was <laughs> it was tough going for us it, um about three hours a day for about two weeks it was um it was brutal um and the incredible thing from your point of view uh, is your wife went into labor on fa cup final day so you were watching <laughs> arsenal beat chelsea wembley from the maternity ward yeah yeah so the, i guess the story behind i mean i i was thinking on the actual cup final day obviously an absolute maelstrom of emotions because mm-hmm. um my, my wife was actually induced um so our, our little girl was uh she was 10 days late in the end and uh so on actual cup final day i was thinking just think of like the extraordinary number of circumstances that have brought this about <laughs> that you know like when, when we found out that we were having a kid in november like if you'd have told me then that um on august the 2nd or august the 1st that arsenal would be playing a cup final behind closed doors and i'd be watching it in a maternity ward that that would have been very very strange indeed but yeah my, my wife was actually induced so we knew it was a possibility because she went in on the thursday mm. and induction can take up to 72 hours so we thought okay it could happen um, and yeah, my, my wife kind of, she started having contractions on Saturday morning um, of the cup final. So she didn't actually go into established labor until the next day. Oh, okay. So 
um it was but when she said you know i'm starting to have contractions on the saturday morning i was thinking oh my god first of all does this mean i'll miss the game and then i thought to myself well okay um you might but you know look you're gonna have to put that to one side obviously but you know the overriding thought for me more than missing the game was thinking I could, like my first child cannot be born the day that Arsenal lose a cup final. Like I, I, I yeah. there aren't many things that could happen that could put any sort of like a smudge in the margin of that great occasion of my life. And I thought, like, how how has it come to this? Like, we took so much care to have a child in July, and there's not meant to be any football. And then there is football, and then there's a cup final, and then she's over a week late. And so I was thinking, this is all stacking up against me. So I was just doubly delighted. Not so much that we won, I was just delighted we didn't lose. And that, I, that for the rest of my life, I won't have to battle with thinking, God, am I a terrible person for thinking that... That the the birth of my first child was slightly kind of yeah. compromised by Arsenal losing a cup final. So thankfully that didn't happen. But yes, me and my wife watched it. My wife is also an Arsenal fan, I should point out. So <laughs> it wasn't like there was no reluctance in me bringing the iPad in yeah. uh, to the maternity ward to watch it. She wanted to watch it too. It's just we were kind of both having contractions for a couple of hours, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think you say that you don't want your daughter to be born on the day Arsenal lose cup final. In a way, it can help because my daughter was born uh, in January 2011. And it was around the time that Fernando Torres was pushing to leave Liverpool. And on the day Torres left Liverpool and joined Chelsea on transfer deadline day 2011, January 2011, was the first day we took our daughter out of the house for her first walk. She'd been born a couple of weeks earlier mm-hmm. and then we took her out the flat for the first time. And I think if she hadn't been around and if we hadn't been completely, you know, hadn't completely thrown our lives into becoming parents for the first time, I would have been transfixed by Torres leaving Liverpool. I'd been really yeah, upset yeah. and um, just heartbroken by it all. But I was completely distracted by this other incredible thing going on in my life. So you may have not felt the pain so badly if Arsenal lost to Chelsea, given what was else was going on in your life. Well, that's the thing. So like on the Saturday morning, I quickly made peace with the idea that I wouldn't see the game. Um, which which I ended up seeing it, but I thought, okay, you're probably going to miss the game. But I thought, well, it's behind closed doors anyway, and I'm so I'm not going to be there. And and this is the first time Arsenal have ever played a cup final in my lifetime, and an FA Cup final in my lifetime, and I've not been there. Mm. So I thought, do you know what? I I wasn't going to be there anyway. And actually, cup final when your team's involved in a cup final, it's horrible. It's 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 torture. And I thought to myself, actually, missing the game and just seeing the result would be okay. Um, and not to put myself through um, that 90 or even maybe 120 minutes of agony and tension. It, it was just that we, ca- we can't lose. We can't lose on this day. Yeah. And obviously, I would, I would like my daughter to be an Arsenal fan if she, you know, if she gets the football bug as well. And I really don't want to have to sit her down one day and say, yeah, sorry, we lost the cup final the day you were born. I, I, <laughs> I really want to say, no, we won a cup final when you were born. Yeah. And so you, you must be an Arsenal fan now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would have obviously been distracted from the whole thing. It was just, and, and I have such an Arsenal family as well. Like I, I just, I just didn't want, <laughs> I just didn't want that against the day. No, that's absolutely fair enough. And uh, mother and daughter all well then? Absolutely great. Yeah, absolutely great. So yeah, she's just gone four weeks and uh, yeah, we're all, yeah, we're, we're, we're a family. It's lovely. No, very good. Very good. It is now incredible time in life as I can, as I can testify to. So uh, yeah, now strap yourself in. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be mental, but you will, uh, you will 
thoroughly enjoy it. Um, and it's really apt that you become a dad around the time that we're speaking, because the first thing I was going to speak to you about uh, is an article you wrote, I think it's four years ago now, for Ask Blog, which you do stuff for, mm. called Arsene Wenger is Like My Dad. Mm. And genuinely, Tim, one of the most moving and beautifully written football pieces I've ever read. I think I, I, think I tweeted that out on the day you reposted it, on the day Wenger announced he was leaving Arsenal in mm. um, 2018. I think you reposted it and I mean, obviously there's thousands of words being written that day and genuinely you know, it was the best piece I read that day. And the, and the essence of the piece is that Wenger is essentially the most important male figure in your life. Your father sadly mm. passed away when you were a baby. You were raised in the house that included your mum and four older sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and he took charge of the club when you were 12. And as anyone who's been 12 knows, it's, that's an incredibly important and impressionable time in your life. And, mm. and Wenger was there essentially to guide you, be a male sort of guiding figure for you. And mm. I'm just wondering if your feelings in regard to Arsene being that father-like figure are as strong now as they were when you wrote the piece in 2016. And in particular, given the fact he's left the club as well, whether you still feel that way about him. So I, I think they will be um, at some stage. So I, I should point out, I've been a season ticket holder since I was eight. So I, I remember the George Graham era. But, mm. you know, 12 is when you start to become aware of a little bit more than just, you know, before that, it was just like, I just need Arsenal to win. And, you know, I didn't care about the tactics or who was playing or who we signed. It was just, I just want Arsenal to win. Whereas when you're 12, you start to get to that stage where you think you know a bit more. You've seen a few more international tournaments and the coverage of football was changing. Um, So, yeah, it's just like the formative period of my life, I guess. But I, I have to admit that I became very very like weary and bored with um the whole and this is not the man's fault really um but I, I just became so bored with how dominant the question became in those last kind of couple of years of, of arson I, I guess i was fairly i was later than probably most people in wanting him to leave i think that mm-hmm. happened in about 2016 i think when we didn't win the title or rather we kind of collapsed in that that title race with Leicester I just thought this isn't going to happen anymore this is just it's done it's gone and it needs to end and the couple of years after that were just were really not enjoyable they were really not enjoyable um actually I remember talking with you on the phone at Munich airport actually um transcribing a piece yeah 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 transcribing a piece for the Guardian it was after we lost 5-1 to Bayern yes I remember that yeah of course and I remember talking about how that that really felt to me like the time when absolutely, well, I say absolutely everyone, it really felt like nearly everyone thought that, God, this has yeah. to end. Mm. And actually going to Arsenal games became a real chore because it was so dominant. It was just such a dominant thing. And every time like I got into a cab and I had an Arsenal jacket on or something or someone just caught, it was just, are you Wenger in or are you Wenger out? It became so defining. Mm. And um, particularly at away games, it became, you know, people were really disgruntled and, and um, yeah, it became hard to enjoy them because everyone around you just wasn't enjoying it and it became really bitter um, and it was a really horrible end and I, I really wish it hadn't ended like that. But that is kind of Arsene Wenger's fault that it ended like that because he wouldn't let go. Um, and so, to be honest, at the time he went, I was really relieved. I was really relieved that that question had gone, um, that it wasn't quite as defining anymore. And I was kind of sick of it. And so this is a long-winded way of saying I, I was quite bored mm. of, the, of the Wenger and Arsenal thing. And I, when we hired Unai Emery, um, I, was, I was never really on board with Unai Emery, but 
I just, I, I kind of didn't want to think or talk about Arsene Wenger anymore for a little while because I just thought, my God, just like, thank goodness that has gone. And even though I'm not really on board with Emery, at least it's something else not to be on board with. Yeah. Um, and now with Arteta, it really feels like for the first time in probably 10 years or more where you feel like Arsenal are on the right path and on an upward trajectory. I mean, granted, we just finished eighth, so it'd be difficult not to be on an upward trajectory uh, for a club of Arsenal standing. Mm. But it, it feels like we're on a different journey now, and I think we've got the right manager. And, and it's been a long time since I felt like that. So I'm kind of, I'm still riding that wave, um, which is not to say I hate Arsene Wenger or anything I don't like. I just like, I just, there, has, there hasn't quite been enough distance yet, but definitely, definitely, when there's a bit more distance, when I look back at it, and I think Arsenal winning a trophy with another manager has been like an important bookmark in that process as well. And the mm. fact that I like the current Arsenal manager will just give me that distance. And, but I know if you ask me that question in 10 years, yes, Arsene Wenger will absolutely feel like, you know, at that point, probably more like a kindly grandfather, but <laughs> certainly, yeah. um, certainly familial. Yeah. Do you feel, going back again to how important he was to you when, you know, as you said, when you were 12, which is a critical moment in anyone's life, that he actually shaped your personality? Because in your writing and when you speak on, on the Arsenal Vision podcast that you're a regular member of, you come across as a very consider, uh, considered thoughtful, quite gentle person. And I would say those are also Arsene Wenger's, Arsene Wenger's personality traits as well. Do you think mm. he actually shaped you as a man? I, definitely the way I think about football. And that might, just, that might just be because that was really all I was exposed to for so many years was just Arsene Wenger's teams. So definitely the way I think about football and um, particularly, you know, with it all became very because you know he was he was particularly with the way he built squads and things like that and he really didn't go for the kind of the craziness of the transfer market and I always tried to appreciate that and I think that became more and more difficult to relay um, in his later years I, I think he just became plain bad at that to be honest but mm. I, I always tried to understand what he was doing and I thought there was a subtlety to what he was doing um, and so, yeah, his ideas about football, I mean, he, he created, if, if any Arsenal manager ever creates Arsenal teams better than the ones I saw under Arsene Wenger, then I'll be incredibly lucky. Um, you know, my, uh, my, my grandfather died, um, unfortunately, just before the end of the unbeaten season. Uh, he died between, we beat Leeds 5-0 on a Friday night, and the next week we went and won it um, at White Hart Lane. And actually, he died in that interim. Oh. Um, which, which kind of had like a poignancy to it yeah. as well, but during that time, you know, he'd obviously seen a lot, a lot, you know, Arsenal for decades and decades, and he just used to say to me, like, appreciate this team because I've never seen a better one than it. And he mm. said, you'll get to my age and you won't see a better one than this. So, it, in one respect, how can that not be formative and not really, really shape my ideas about football? In in terms of personality, I I, I think it's mainly. Um, to be honest, because as you highlighted, I was brought up in a house with women. Um, and, and so like, I'm not, and never will be like an alpha male type, I guess. Um, you know, I was brought up exclusively with and around women. Um, and, and so I think that probably comes through a little bit more in, in, in my personality, but, but Arsene Wenger is definitely, um, you know, if, if you ask me like three dinner guests exclusively from football, then Arsene Wenger would, would probably be the first, my first answer on that list. Yeah. 
No, it makes perfect sense. Well, let's go back to the very start. I think you've probably answered this question um, just by, I think you said earlier uh, that you come from a family of Arsenal fans. Is that the reason you're a Gooner? Is that what made you an Arsenal fan, the family around you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so now we're mainly Arsenal, but um, it, it was Arsenal and Spurs really were the, were the two teams in my family. So I was always going to choose one of them. And um, I've always been very open about the fact that I was very close to becoming a Spurs fan. Um, in the, we're, we're talking about 1990, 91, where I started to make the choice. And at that time, Tottenham had Paul Gascoigne. And any young boy in England who saw Paul Gascoigne play, um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, you couldn't not be a fan of Paul Gascoigne because he was absolutely amazing. And, and really my first thing before I was really old enough to grasp the concept of supporting a team you think of players more and so I guess I was a Paul Gascoigne supporter <laughs> for a little while but um, but then it comes to the stage where you choose a team and for a couple of things happened first of all um, Gaza was being transferred to Lazio so he wasn't yeah. going to play for Spurs anymore perhaps if that transfer hadn't happened maybe I might have been a Spurs fan but the other thing that happened was that I mean, obviously, I started to play football in the playground and Gaza was the player I wanted to copy. I wanted to be that skillful player that, that took people on. And, um, and actually, what I saw at Arsenal at that time was Arsenal had Limpar, Rocastle, Merson, these really exciting players who also love taking players on. That was my first love of watching football. It's still my biggest love is watching someone beat a player one-on-one. And, um, and I guess... Spurs had one player that could do it, but Arsenal had three. And the one Spurs had um, was leaving anyway. So I think that really influenced um, my decision to be an Arsenal fan. And then, like, you know, this is, this is I guess, fortunate. Um, you know, it was the 1990-91 season when Arsenal absolutely walked the league title, lost only one game. And I remember thinking, Did they walk wow. It, did they walk it? I mean, wasn't it in ninety one? Yeah, they well, they won it. With Liverpool the... lost to Forest in there, so wasn't it? Liverpool lost to Forest sort of quite late on, and yeah. then you beat United. They won it uh, with two games to spare. You are you classing that as a walkover, are you, Tim? <laughs> it, it, it is by Arsenal standards. Yes, <laughs> usually when Arsenal win the league, it's uh, <laughs> fair it's, enough. It's a bit more, but um, but yeah, yeah. So like they yeah. they lost one game, and during that season, like I I kind of really fell in love with that team, and and that yeah. sounds like quite glory hunterish but I wasn't really aware of the significance of it it was more I just watched them and thought wow this is a really exciting um, you know George Graham's Arsenal and and really it was because I found them so exciting so that's why I became an Arsenal fan and in 1992 uh, my mum and I got season tickets and I've been a season ticket holder ever since yeah no fair enough I do remember that Arsenal team I'm, I'm a little bit older <laughs> than you I do remember the Arsenal team of 91 very very well they were very good and I remember they had a lovely kit as well that sort of AFC yep. on the collar didn't they sort of stitched in in sort of italic the, almost lettering and the splodges kit one yeah, of my favorites it was yeah a lovely top yeah no I see well we'll come on to George Graham specifically in a second because I am intrigued to get your thoughts on him I just want to go back to your first game as an Arsenal fan um, it was a one-all draw with Leeds on the 27th of March 1992. Lee Chapman gave Leeds mm-hmm. the lead on 76 minutes. Paul Merson equalised uh, seven minutes before the end. So if I've got my maths right, you were eight years old in 92. Um, mm-hmm. You said that's also the year you got a season ticket as well. I mean, that all feels very young to be becoming a match-goer, even to go into your yeah. first game. Was that quite unusual? Or do you know other people around the same age doing that? 
No, I'd say it probably was. Well, hmm. so yeah, I was. I I got season ticket. Yeah, I, basically on the back of that game. I think I went to one more at the end of the ninety one ninety two season. And again, Arsenal Arsenal started that season really badly, but finished it brilliantly. And mm. there were this series of brilliant games. And I remember we beat Sheffield Wednesday seven one um, on Valentine's Day, and I think it was one all um, after about fifty five minutes. And then Arsenal just smashed six in and they were really exciting and um but I I just I quickly got hooked on the match day thing um and and actually I guess I guess it is unusual when I speak to people now but I mean we got our season tickets in the family enclosure um at Arsenal and I was a junior gunner so it was really cheap even by like 1992 standards it was really cheap because most people didn't have season tickets so back then you got a real discount if you bought a season ticket. Now they don't do that, but um, you know, you, you'd end up paying about half or three quarters the price than if you just turn up every week and pay so, on the gate. So that's it. I should just say that's really interesting. So they're, they're almost, the clubs are almost encouraging fans to become season yep. ticket holders as, I, as opposed to now, as you're touching on, and I know very well, um, people are you know, falling over themselves to become season ticket yep. holders. So they, rack, you know, they rack, rack the prices up really high and it's very difficult to get in, in at that level. That's interesting. I yeah. Think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You kind of didn't really need them before the Taylor report. People just mm. used to used to turn up, and so they were they were heavily discounted. But particularly if you're a junior gunner and you sat in the family enclosure, um, so so it was it was really cheap for a start off. But also it meant you're surrounded by other families. So I you know I I saw plenty of people around me who were about my age who were there with their parents who were Arsenal fans and um, and. And and that so so it didn't feel uncommon to me. I guess at school I might have been the only season ticket holder. Um, I know I, I knew a couple of. I grew up in South London, so I knew a, a couple of Crystal Palace season ticket holders. But certainly with a club like Arsenal, I might have been the only one. But I mean, the simple answer is I just I just got the bug really really quickly for for watching football. And I think every young football fan starts to make that decision between whether you're more of a watcher or more of a player. Yeah. And I really enjoyed playing when I was younger. And that tension was still kind of there because I used to play on Saturday mornings. But, but watching quickly won out. I just loved, I loved, first of all, the visceral stadium experience. But I, lo- I loved like trying to, trying to work out what was going on. Um, and, and sorry if this is a very like middle class uh, Guardian Easter thing to say. But I almost like, because re- I love going to the cinema as well yeah. for the same reason i love watching when i watch a film or i read a book or something or i listen to a song my my first thought is i want to work out what the individual's trying to do mm. so i watch a film and i think what like what is the director trying to do with all of this and so i i quite naturally have like quite an analytical mindset like that and and the act of going to watch football like you could see it so much better and it wasn't on tv as much back then either um, but when you were there, you could just see what was going on so much better. And, and just even if I didn't quite understand it at that age, you know, just watching how players moved around and I was watching players who weren't anywhere near the ball to see what they were doing. Like it all just fascinated me completely. Um, and so, it, it, yeah, the quick answer is like eff- effectively my family encouraged it anyway. But I, I really, really quickly um, got that bug and I still now when I go and watch a football game there are so many different things I get out of it um, that it, it just quickly became a complete addiction 
Yeah, I really, I really get that, that, that idea of either you become a watcher or a player. Because I always find it quite strange when you hear um, young, young players, I guess, or older players as well, say, oh, I never really watched football. Uh, mm. Younger players at the time saying, well, you know, a youth academy prospect saying, I don't really watch football. I never really watched football as a kid. I was playing. And older mm. players say the same. And I, I'm like you. I got the bug for becoming a match goer when I went to my first Liverpool game. I also went to my first Liverpool game in 92. It was a bit later. It was in December 92. And immediately afterwards, I wanted to be a match goer. I wanted to be a regular match goer. Mm. It was difficult for me for various you know, logistical reasons and stuff. But... Um, yeah, the idea of not being able to go to live football, sacrificing that for anything else, even playing, just seemed bizarre to me. For me, that yeah. was the goal, was to watch live football as much as possible. So um, I absolutely get that. And I mean, I'm curious, then, how have you been coping during lockdown? Because <laughs> I've been struggling, really. I've got to be honest, I'm really missing going to the game. And I think people who don't go regularly to football, or certainly don't go at all, don't get what a big loss it is from your life when you don't go. Because mm. it's not just those 90 minutes, is it? It's everything around. It's meeting your mates in the pub before and for a pint. It's, as you said, the visual aspect of football. It's not just the game, it's the atmosphere and, and the people you see there. I mean, I found it a big loss. How, how have you coped? I, I've been fortunate in that this has probably happened in the one period of my life yeah. where, um, yeah, yeah. where I've, I've kind of got other things going on. So, I mean, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, obviously, like having a baby and all of that, which would have impacted me going quite so often anyway. Um, and you know, during when games were on during lockdown, my wife was heavily pregnant and therefore it kind of suited me actually that every Arsenal game was on TV. And, uh, I've written about this as well. I didn't get that kind of the thing you get when you go all the time and then there's the odd game you don't go to. And I'll come back to this in a minute is you get the real, you get the FOMO, you get the real fear of missing out. You get the, Oh God, I can't believe I'm not there today. Like I feel you know, you just want the game to go um, and get out of the way so you can concentrate on going to the next one. And the, the fact that no one else has been there mm. has actually made it quite easy because I know everyone else is, is having the same experience and that social aspect it, it isn't there um, at the moment. It's, it's just not there. Um, and I guess I'm kind of grateful that there is there has just been some football um, to be able to watch and to be able to watch from home um, in a period of my life where I've had to be more domesticated anyway. Um, but I guess the other thing that's happened for me is, so last season, um, well, the 2018-19 season, I broke um, a, a record of, of attendance. So I had, at that point, I was nearly 17 years without missing an away game. Um, and I was just over 19 years um, without missing a home game. And I broke that um, in December 2018 because uh, my wife is from Brazil. And at some point we were going to have to go to Brazil for Christmas and New Year to see her family. Yeah. Uh, and that was the year we did it. So I actually missed, having not missed any games for, for you know nearly 20 years, I missed a block of like six mm in in two to three weeks and when you break a run like that it becomes easier to, to miss other games so, so some of the ridiculous lengths I've gone to to go to games within because, because I was on this run like I, I've been to Newcastle away with gastric flu I've had <laughs> yeah. I've had yeah yeah I, I had six teeth out once the morning that we were away at Nottingham Forest and I still like I had early morning appointment. The dentist did that, got on the train, went to Forest Away. Like just these ridiculous things right. that I've done. And, and now that that run is broken, I've been able to take like a, a, 
a, a bit more of a view on missing games and now like I, I do a lot of like journalism around the women's team and last season actually I started um, I missed a couple of games to cover women's games because I, I, I really really enjoy that side of it as well and it, it puts a bit of money in my pocket so it, it it's like if this had happened even three years ago when I was still on that run honestly this would have killed me it would have absolutely killed me I, I doubt I'd have I'd have barely been able to bring myself to watch the matches, but yeah. it it just came at a time where I'd broken that, and because really silly things would go through my head, like does this count as me missing games now if I actually can't be in the stadium? Like does that contribute towards my run? Like what what does that mean? And and actually I'd, I don't have to worry about that as much, so I've been able to take a much more kind of considered view of it, but. Um, like undoubtedly yes i'm missing it and i i really like even um you know i i assume the first game i'll go back to is like a socially distanced kind of affair even that i I just can't wait i really can't but i really hope um i guess it will feel more like a treat and uh i'll really really value it more even in those circumstances than than i might have yeah yeah no i agree i think that first game back after after lockdown, it's going to feel very, very special. And you're unique among, um, well, among football supporters in general, that you've, as a supporter, you've had two home stadiums. Of course, Highbury was the first stadium you, you ever went to to watch Arsenal yep. and was your first home ground. And obviously the Emirates uh, became your home ground in 2006. Um, I mean, how's that been? How Was the transition quite easy to make? Do you prefer one mm. to the other? How different are they from a sort of atmosphere point of view? Um, so I, I, I don't think they're as different as people say. I think, um, look, the, the Emirates is a, is a modern stadium um, and that lends itself to, you know, more, I guess, of a certain type of supporter coming in. That's, that's just what happens when you, you open the doors to more people. There aren't, you know, there aren't going to be 60,000 people in the stadium, in any one stadium, who are absolutely transfixed on every single second. Like the whole point of getting a bigger stadium is that I guess you get... You know, you get a, a slightly different uh, catchment audience, but that was that was happening anyway, and not just at Highbury. Um, it it's happened everywhere um, in English football. I think the only exceptions are maybe teams that get promoted into the Premier League, mm. um, who for a couple of seasons will make a real racket. Like I remember Stoke and Portsmouth coming up, and for a few years there was a real racket at those grounds. But once they'd been up for a couple of years, that went. Um, as the kind of level of expectation changed. So I, w- I was massively behind the move um, to the Emirates. In fact, I think it should have happened earlier. Um, and and, and I really re- like, you know, accepting all of those things and accepting the way that watching games is and that life changes and things become different. I really, really like the Emirates. I really do. I, I did something slightly different with my seat as well at Highbury. I sat in the clock end. Um, behind the goal and I had literally the seat before the away supporters so that was my seat um, for six years before we left because I was in the family enclosure then I moved into the clock end when I was too old to sit in the family enclosure and then so until I was 22 and 16 to 22 is a fantastic time to have your season ticket next to the away fans <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful time to be there it's when you're when we most moved, brave, I guess Yes, yeah, 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 and and when you enjoy that side of it so yeah, much more, yeah, yeah, yeah. now I wouldn't bat an eyelid at it. But you know, in your late teens, it's great, yeah. particularly because we were really good and we beat most teams then. Yeah. So, um, 
But then when we went to the Emirates, I chose a different seat and I went into the upper tier at the sides to get the view because I made the long-term decision, right, you know, this is hopefully going to be my season ticket for, well, I hope the rest of my life. So um, I really want to go for somewhere good um, and really get a view of the game because I think the atmosphere is changing anyway. Mm. And so I, I did that. And now I have, I have a wonderful seat, like near the halfway line in the upper tier. I'm in the front row. Nobody walks past me. Nobody bothers me. It's, it's wonderful. And, uh, and I love it. And, and I, I think the thing is, you know, football's going to change. The experience of going to football is going to change. The dynamics going to change. The people that come into it are going to change. And really you've got to ride or die with that. And, um, and, and that's fine if you want to do the latter. And I completely, I know plenty of people who've, who've kind of fallen away and just said, well, this isn't for me anymore. This isn't really what I want. So I'm going to stop going. And I think that's what those people should do. But with me, it was just like, okay, this is, this is slightly different now. Um, that's fine. That's fine with me. Um, and so I, I, I really, really like the Emirates and now it's been 14 years. So I've possibly been to the, so this is a halfway point for me. I first went to Highbury in 92. It closed 14 years later. We're now at 14 years in the Emirates. So I've got like a, obviously my Emirates record will leave Highbury kind of in the dusk um, at some point, but it, it, to me, it just, it felt right. It really felt right. And, you know, if you're going to pine for, you know, pining for Highbury for me would just feel like pining for the 1990s and for Britpop and for I don't know four weddings and a funeral, and step haircuts and <laughs> curtains and global hypercolor like there's just there's just no point like it's fine to um it's fine to look back on those things with a bit of nostalgia, but there's just no point in hoping that you know that that all of that will come back again because it won't um and and yeah i I've got you know i I'm not entirely uh, when it comes to the stadium experience hashtag against modern football. No, that's fair enough. And I think what's really nice about the Emirates for anyone who hasn't been is um, it's the same route, isn't it, that you would have done when you go to Highbury. Mm-hmm. You literally see Highbury when you come out of Arsenal. Well, it depends how you get there. You might go, get off the of Finchley Park. Whenever I go to the Emirates, I go to Arsenal. and you come out of the tube, the old Highbury, as it was, is basically in front of you and you turn right yes. to get to, to the Emirates. So the, the whole atmosphere, is the outside atmosphere, I guess, is exactly the same as it was yep. when you were going to Highbury. But and the location's not massively different either. And the Emirates is an absolutely beautiful stadium as well. From a from an away fan and a journalist uh, perspective, I can testify mm-hmm. to. And obviously, you, you've got the home experience. But yeah, let's, let's go right back. Because I do want to talk about um, George Graham. He's the first Arsenal manager I remember when I got into football. And I feel, I feel his kind of importance and legacy to Arsenal has been overshadowed by two things. First of all, Wenger, who obviously cast an enormous... Mm-hmm era-defining shadow over Arsenal, but also the bung scandal as well, to some extent, that happened in 95. Um, and I just wonder what your, sort of, your view is on Graham, really. Because I feel, I mean, Wenger is you know, undoubtedly, I, I, mean, I would say Arsenal's greatest ever manager. Maybe Herbert Chapman might, might rival mm. him. But I think Graham, for me, is, is a pretty close second. I mean, won your first league title in 28 years, in arguably the most famous game in English football. Uh, and he developed a really tangible identity for the team with a really, and I mean, you, you, you touched on this as well, an exciting team. It was a team with young players at the start, the likes of Rowcastle, Thomas, um, etc. Uh, and then became quite exciting in the early 90s, the likes of Limpar as well. Um, I mean, where do you feel he stands in Arsenal's sort of history at the moment? Has he been kind of completely overwhelmed by Wenger? 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think this is this is something um, about legacies of both footballers and football managers that they just can't control. It depends who comes after you. Yeah. If you sell um, a really good player, like for Liverpool, right? Um, Torres leaving. I, I happen to think, I honestly, honestly, I thought Torres was well on the decline before that move. And honestly, when Chelsea bought him... Um, I, I might have even tweeted about it. I was just like, what are Chelsea doing? This is a guy who is on, I thought Liverpool did a blinder. But the thing is, what did Liverpool do with the money? They bought, not Andy Carroll, but they bought Suarez, right? Yeah. So I don't think Torres is quite as sore a spot for Liverpool fans because the next guy they got was probably better. Mm. And, and that's something that footballers and football managers can't control. Sometimes it depends who comes after you. Um, and, and that will colour... Um, how people regard you. So I almost look at um, George Graham to give you an analogy, the same as I look at Mark Overmars. Mark Overmars was a terrific player for Arsenal who was hugely instrumental in the double season. And then he left, but then we bought Robert Perez, who was even better. Mm. So now Mark Overmars is forgotten. And then sometimes you can get quite a good player who's okay, but then if his replacement is worse, then he's kind of fated and lionised. So with, with Graham, for me, he, you can split his, um, his tenure into two halves, really. That first half, and I probably came in, you know, when he'd been in the job for four years or so. But yeah, the, the way he gutted, um, he, he was doing something similar to what I think Arteta's doing now, which is kind of gutted, like changing the culture he got rid of some big egos some big characters some big players like Kenny Sanson uh, Graham Ricks um, Tony Woodcock you know really big like international players and he and he tore it up and he started again and and I mean my, my feeling of George Graham I remember like contemporaneously when I was a child I looked at him obviously because I was a bit younger almost like um, almost like my headmaster just someone that like I really really respected but who to me was up on this big pedestal and you know he had that real kind of stern headmaster type um I guess I stature anyway and I just remember being like in awe of him really and of the team he built um I think what happened really unfortunately he kind of lost faith in the idea of being this exciting attacking team sold players like Limpar um you know, sold David Rowcastle, albeit he had he had bad knee injuries at the time, and and really Arsenal became a very functional kind of cup team. But I I still really enjoyed that. I still really enjoyed, even though we weren't winning the league anymore. I, you know, winning the Cup Winners' Cup in '94 was just one of my favourite Arsenal memories. Just watching Arsenal take on like PSG with Ginola and George Weah and all these exotic players I'd only really heard of, um, and Palmer with Brolin, Aspria, and Zola, and us kind of rocking up with with our back five um, and like David Hillier and Ian Selly. And I, I loved winning those cups, but I, I think really. I, th I think you see this. This happens much more quickly in the modern game that managers quickly cannibalise their ideas, mm. lose traction, particularly if they've got like a bit of a disciplinarian air. And so by the end of the Graham era, it did really feel like it was drifting to 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 a kind of an inevitable conclusion. But I, I still view him as as the kind of he laid um, 
you know, he laid the foundations for the modern Arsenal, absolutely. Um, just look at that back five. He left Arsene Wenger, who were instrumental in winning winning that double in 97-98. And it, it really gave, I'm sure Arsene Wenger would say, you know, without George Graham, um, his kind of induction into English football would, would not have been um, quite as great as it was. Um, yeah, I, I, will, I will always have uh, great respect for George Graham. I think he was exactly what Arsenal needed at the time he came. And by the time he left, he was not what we needed anymore. And that's fine. That's just life. Yeah. And one of the players he brought through, um, we've mentioned him, and he makes your all-time Arsenal eleven, which we'll come on to uh, at the end of the podcast, is David Rowcastle. And I'm really glad you picked him because... Um, he's someone I have fleeting memories of because I was quite young when he was playing for Arsenal. But I do remember, remember him being absolutely brilliant. Uh, he played for Arsenal between 1984 and 1992. 228 appearances. Um, a wonderful footballer. There's that great documentary that uh, was done recently with him and Ian Wright um, about their growing up together, which I didn't realise how close they were as kids. And, and you see some clips of Rodecast playing in there. That goal against United at Old Trafford in particular was really special. Um, Extraordinary footballer. Uh, how much do you actually remember of him? I mean, he's gotten into your all-time Arsenal eleven because again, you you were pretty young when he was when he was at his peak for Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. So he he's he's just one of the reasons I'm an Arsenal fan. Um, it's that simple. It was it was you know that thing I was talking about earlier about exciting players that take people on and and really that that trio of Rocastle, Merson, and Limpar. Limpar is probably my favourite ever Arsenal player. Um, Merson's close in there as well. But the, the thing with David Rocastle was he he was a real flair player, but he was a real fighter as well. Um, you know, he had every... The, the things I think that fans value most in players that become cult heroes are either... You've either got to be like full of running and effort and, you know, not flinch when you're kicked and kick people back. Um, I guess Jordan Henderson at Liverpool you know, probably yeah. become a bit of a cult figure yeah, similar. Um, for those reasons. And, and I think that's kind of downplaying perhaps everything that he brings. But, you know, he, players like that are always popular with supporters or be a great skillful player that takes people on and beats them and, and you know, has a step over. And quite simply, Rocastle had both, mm. um, which, made, which made him quite unique. And, but the thing is, for me as well, he, he comes from the area I come from. So I'm sitting recording this podcast about two miles away from, from where uh, David Rocastle and Ian Wright were born. And I just remember that being, you know, growing up in that area, that, that was really significant, the fact that, um, you know, Kevin Campbell uh, came from Lambeth and Paul Davis and Ian Wright and David Rocastle were all South London lads. And, you know, being an Arsenal fan, you know, living in South London, I, I don't know if that was so important to me, but it was important to a lot of the people I went to school with and a lot of Arsenal fans I went to school with who I used to talk with Arsenal about. Um, and, they, and they were just, they were really special players um, for that reason. So I think there's, there's a little bit of like, um, you know, something, I guess, non-football going on in there. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and, and everything you read and see about him as, as a person um, and everything like that. And I, I've been very privi- privileged to get to know um, his son, Ryan, as well, subsequently. And it's, it's just such a, such a wonderful family as well. And I think... Um, his name is still sung at every away game um, for Arsenal, and that's you know he's he's 19 years he's been gone now, and and that that doesn't just happen by accident. That happened, and that doesn't just happen because you're a good winger for a good team. 
Mm. Um, that happens because you've got something extra that gives you that bond with supporters. And, and yeah, Rowcastle had that in absolute spades. And I think you can see he was never quite the same player once he left Arsenal. And I think part of that was, part of that was to do with injuries, but I think part of that was just um, a little bit of his, his heart kind of broke when he left Arsenal. And, and uh, he really, um, he really symbolized the club and got, got what it meant. He, he was, he was a real fans player. I mean, he was brilliant, but he was, he was a player who, you know, you won't find an Arsenal fan who saw him play who like, we all get it. We all get that he got it and that that made him really special. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there's any younger listeners listening to this, but I'd say under the age of maybe 20 who never seen David Rowcastle play, just go YouTube him now because he is a really, really special football. I don't think he, I don't know how many England caps he got. He probably only got about half a dozen, maybe. So he should have got a lot. Yeah. More. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember where you were or what you were doing when you heard he died on the 31st yeah. of March 2001? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was the day Arsenal played Tottenham. Um, of course. Home, I remember. Yes. Yeah, yeah I remember. That's right, yeah. That, yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I remember exactly how I found out because um, even though I was 17 at the time, I was still going to um, going to the pub before games. And this is kind of, you know, just before mobile technology on phones. And I just remember swinging the doors open um, of the pub that I went to, I still go to before home games, the Bank of Friendship. And everyone just looked really glum. And, you know, I thought, why does everyone look so glum? And then, yeah, we told the news. And I, I think from memory, it had come out maybe a couple of days before that, that, that maybe he, that he was very ill. Because mm. even his illness wasn't, wasn't hugely public. But I think there was something, you know, a couple of days before that was like, yeah, he's, he's, he's quite ill. And, uh, and yeah, so I found out in, I guess, the most, in, in some ways the most gutting way but in other ways the most apt way like on my way to Highbury and and experiencing it with other Arsenal fans and the weird thing about that day was I watched um, I watched dozens of other people go through exactly the same process of being inside that pub everybody knew and you'd see someone swing on the doors open and they'd come in and they'd look you know happy excited nervous and then someone would tell them and you saw their face drop and just watching this process over and over again of of um of of everyone absorbing the news and obviously that wouldn't happen today because everyone would be looking at their phones on the way to the game and everyone would know straight away um so it's kind of a different cultural but but like a very shared moment which um you know i i guess i don't want to say it's apt because it's so tragic but um and and then you know that it was against spurs and then i just remember you know, everyone, everyone was really, really sad and really down. And then they were just about to do the minute silence. And like I said, I used to sit next to the away fans. And just as the referee blew the whistle, it was the first time it crossed my mind. I thought, oh God, pl- like, please, nobody ruin the minute silence. Like, I, you know, just can't do so raw. Just can't take that. And, uh, and Tottenham fans, you know, not a peep, not a peep um, from any of them. And, and that was a really kind of special moment as well, actually. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much credit you should really give people for not disrespecting like a minute silence like that. But like, you know, it only takes one, doesn't it? And the fact that there wasn't even one, um, I, you know, I, I think tells you a lot. And, and, and you know, look, it, it, it it was again i don't want to say a special day because it was so sad but like you said robert perez scored and he wore the number 7 and it just it just kind of felt 
it felt so apt, but obviously it was, and, and what was, you know, especially kind of poignant about it was a lot of his teammates were in the team that day. So Tony Adams played, David Seaman played, uh, Lee Dixon, Martin Keown, they all started. They were his teammates. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tony Adams is, a f- I think, a year older than David Rocastle. And what must he have been going through thinking, wow, I'm older than this guy and, you know, all, all of this has happened and now I've got to play a game against Tottenham. And yeah, and, and I guess that put it into, uh, into its, more, its more tragic context. Yeah, no, taken far too soon, far too soon. Um, and another player I want to talk about from that era, we have already mentioned him, is Ian Wright. Um, mm. He hasn't made your all-time 11, which, is abs- which will make perfect <laughs> sense when we get onto it. Um, your, your centre forwards are, are rather special, so there's no shame in Ian Wright not making it. Um, but he, I mean, he was brilliant for Arsenal as well, obviously. Um, 185 goals from 288 appearances, ridiculous record. Um, Arsenal's all-time top scorer before, uh, and this is one of the players who has made your uh, all-time 11. No, you'd be surprised here. Thierry Henry came along and broke that record. And I think now he's kind of seen as this lovely, cheeky, chappy, smiley bloke who does a bit of punditry for the BBC. And I just wonder, I don't know what your take is on this, but I just wonder if that's lessened, um, legacy is the right word, but just his profile as a footballer, because he was absolutely brilliant. And I think one of the most sort of telling comments about him, I can't remember who made it, and I, uh, apologies to the person who did, it may have been on the podcast. They said, this was a few years ago before they turned crap. He said, um, right, he said Ian Wright at his peak could have played for this Barcelona team. This is when Barcelona were good, mm. you know, four or five years ago. And he goes, he was good enough to play for them. He would have fitted their style. And I remember li- hearing that, I think it was on a podcast, and just sort of nodding away. I mean, he was that good, wasn't he, at his best? Yeah, he was. The thing is, he could score. I mean, again, it's another one. Just YouTube his goals because there's everything there. Um, volleys, left foot, right foot, headers, um, scrappy goals, just brilliantly inventive, improvised goals. He was he was a real street footballer. You could tell that he didn't come from an academy. Um, you know, for those that don't know, Ian Wright had a few unsuccessful trials at, at, at clubs, and he gave up football in his late teens. And it was David Rocas who persuaded him to give it another shot, and and then he went to Crystal Palace uh, from non-league. Um, so he was playing non-league, and he was a plasterer. And, uh, and if you listen to interviews with him now, he says that some of the like more audacious goals he scored in the Premier League were down to the fact that Sunday League was just, or non-league, was so below his level mm. that when he was, you know, 19, 20, playing part-time, he, he basically got bored in the games and he thought, right, okay, my next goal is going to be on my left foot. Um, because, you know, I've already scored three on my right foot today. So next one has to be left foot. Next one has to be outside the area. And he already think um, next one has to go in off the bar. And so he used to try all these things in non-league. And that really, it really made him almost like um, some of those South American strikers that you love who, you know, kind of um, who grow up playing street football. That was Ian. Like he was, he was a street footballer. And the thing was, he had the temperament to go with it. He had that sort of temperament where everybody hated him, except Arsenal fans who loved him. You know, it, it was just one of those, um, he'd get up everyone's nose and he was, you know, he'd do like trash talk with defenders and he'd, you know, he'd talk to them. I, I heard on a podcast, he'd say something like, um, he used to go up to like goalkeepers at corners and he'd say, yeah, George, the manager, George told me that uh, you're the weakness in the team. He told me to follow in every shot because you'll spill it. 
um, or he'd talk to centre halves and say, "Yeah, George told me to come and come and stand on your side because you'll give me something that you're the weak link." And you know, and, and none of it was true, but he used to just, you know, just that kind of Sunday league level kind of, um, I guess, sledging uh, to use a cricket term. And, and that made Arsenal fans love him as well, like because we loved his flaws and his rough edges. You got a favourite Ian Wright goal? Um, there's a goal he scored against Swindon Town on New Year's Eve of 1993 in the 93-94 season, a 40-yard chip from close to the touchline. Um, and the, the kind of some of the context around it is great in that Kevin Campbell had scored a hat trick. And, you know, those two always used to joke, you know, Kevin Campbell was always like, oh, I'm always going to be an Ian Wright shadow. And Kevin Campbell scores a hat-trick away at Swindon with 3-0 up. And then in injury time, Ian Wright scores a 40-yard chip, which Brilliant. goes in off the post. And, um, and yeah, and I love his description of the goal, uh, like when he describes it now, because some, I think the interviewer asked him, like, why did you even try and shoot from there? And he just said, I, I can't explain it, but out the corner of my eye, the goalkeeper looked weird. What's <laughs> his explanation? He said there was just something about in that like off the cuff blink of an eye, corner of the eye moment. He thought, I just thought that the goalkeeper wasn't where he should be. And so he just went for it. And and that's Ian Wright all over. He saw something for a quarter of a second out the corner of his eye and he thought, why not? And so he tried to chip the goalkeeper from 40 yards and he did it. And that that to me is just the essence of Ian Wright. No offside, as Wright found Campbell here, almost on the goal line, to score the first in 19 minutes. Seven minutes later, Wright dispossessed Paul Bowden, and then released Campbell through the middle to score the second. Swindon have served notice these days that even if they lose, they won't be pushed around. But in the second half, it was Wright again, setting Parler free down the right, and his ball into the middle found Campbell at the back post to complete his hat-trick. With just one minute left, Ian Wright gave an example of the vision that is the hallmark of all great players. Fraser Digby only marginally off his line, but Wright spotted it in an instant. Let's, let's get back to the Wenger era then. Um, fair to say the period 1998 to 2004 was your happiest as an Arsenal matchgoer. And I just yeah. wonder how sort of emboldened you feel you felt during that period. I mean, I know as a Liverpool fan, like the last 18 months, I'm, I'm a pessimist by nature. Uh, my glass <laughs> is very, very much half, half empty. But last kind of 18 months, only last year, going to Liverpool games, I just kind of get on the coach up to Anthem and think, yeah, we're, we're probably going to win today. Uh, you must yep. have had that feeling for the bulk of that period. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and you know some of the some of the discussions we used to have as well about you know because the only the only downside of that era era was underperforming in the Champions League, and mm. I remember you know we used to say like I mean at that time it was more like AC Milan um, you'd point to as like a big team in Europe, but we used to say God if you put Vieira, Perez, Bergkamp, Henri, Sol Campbell, Ashley Cole. Yeah, you put them in AC Milan shirts, they'd be favourites for the Champions League, like no no question. But yeah, it, it is that feeling of, um, I guess, invincibility um, that you get. And I just, you know, I, and there, you know, loved Robert Perez, loved Dennis Bergkamp, Sol Campbell, great defender. But the two the two players that really signified the era for me was, were Vieira and Henri. And the reason was always away from home when things got a bit tasty. I always just thought, 
kick us as much as you like. Vieira will sort that out, no problem. And um, Omri will take care of the rest. And, and Omri just gave me that feeling where I literally used to, you know, particularly at Highbury when we're at home, I just used to, you know, you'd watch like, you'd watch that team come out of the tunnel and you realize how big it is and mm. or sorry how big it was how imposing it was and i just remember looking at teams and i'd look at Thierry Henry and i'd think you're basically already one nil down because <laughs> Henry's going to score like there's no two ways about it and even when we went one nil down i used to think okay but Henry hasn't scored his goal yet so it's kind of almost like it's one one <laughs> and 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 it's just that kind of that feeling that um, you know, Vieira will break you down physically, he'll run through you, and then Omri will do the rest. And even if he has an off day, then there's Perez or there's Bergkamp or there's Freddie Jungberg. You know, it just felt, yeah, I, I can imagine, like you said about Liverpool this last 18 months, it's just kind of, we've got too many ways of hurting you. We've got too many ways of winning this game. And effectively, you can't solve them all. Um, and and that's I think that's the process Liverpool have come through under Klopp, right? They you know they got the pressing down, and then it was well, what do we do against the deep blocks? And then they got that down, and then it was you know like gradually they just found more and more ways of winning games until they'd almost completed football and come to a stage where whatever you do, we will find a way. And that's how I felt watching that Arsenal team. I just thought whatever your tactics are today like they're not going to work effectively and that that's um that that's a wonderful feeling um as a football fan when you feel that about your team yeah i remember you made a comment on um, the, the podcast that the arsenal that you guys at the arsenal vision did that the pod you do with elliot paul and clive which is absolutely brilliant by the way um about Henri, and you were saying i think it was the one you did so i should say um to mark wenger leaving so i think on the day wenger announced he was going you guys did a podcast um, all together to sort of look back at the wenger and it's a really 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 good listen recommend anyone go back and listen to it and you made a comment that really stuck with me which is you saying you remember i think around 2003 being maybe in the way end at arsenal and the arsenal fans were singing about thierry Henry being the best striker in the world mm-hmm. and it sort of just hit you like we've got the best striker in the world i just can imagine that yeah. must have been an incredible feeling yeah yeah the the uh yeah the chant um we've got the best player in the world and um and and saying it and and it not being you know not being like you know like when you sing we're by far the greatest team the world has ever seen and you know you don't really believe that but but (laughs) singing something like that and thinking and uh and again like so i used to clock the reaction of the away fans when we used to sing that and you know they're like quite often um, like honestly, very, very often, like one of the, you'd look over and one would look back and go, yep, <laughs> yep you have. Yep. That's right. And, uh, and again, that, that's, that's an incredible feeling when, when you've got a player in your team and you think this is legitimately, you know, obviously these things are subjective, but it's just like, this is legitimately the player that if, anyone like any other team in the world could sign one player this is the player that they would sign and and we never got the sense that he was just passing through either we got the sense that he loved being at Arsenal Henri and Henri and Arsenal was a really nice fit Mm. I, I like I don't think one of the super clubs was ever a fit for Henri because I think he needs to be the main man he needs to be loved 
and he got that at Arsenal and, and obviously he got it at Arsenal at, at, at exactly the right point in our history. But it was just it was just a really nice kind of mutual relationship where we had the best player. And perhaps unlike Vieira, who we always thought every summer we might lose, we didn't feel like that with Henri. We felt like, no, this this guy, he he loves us back kind of thing. And that's, yeah, that's, that's again, that's, that's an invincible feeling when, when you get that. It's rare. Yeah. Well, I'm mean, talking about the invincibles. They are actually rightly cherished by Arsenal fans. Are probably your greatest club side, but a team I've got real fondness for is the, is the 97, 98 team, partly because they stopped Man United mm-hmm. winning the league, which is always important. <laughs> um, but I just, I just think it's like sort of a madcap, sort of almost sitcom-esque team where you've got these mm. five old English blokes at the back sort of muddling along and doing what they were doing, you know, 10 years ago under a different manager. And then there's all these sort of super sexy foreigners ahead of them. Um, mm. It was just a wonderful mix. I don't think we've seen anything like it since or probably before. Um, and that season, 97, 98, when, when did you kind of really realise, hang on, there's something very special happening here and bloody hell, we might actually win the league? It, it's really weird because we were sixth at Christmas um, in the 97-98 season and then we won 10 games in a row um, towards the end. And one, it was 78 points. Like 78 points doesn't even get you in the top four anymore. Uh, but um, the the point I really realised we were going to win it, I think every certainly every Arsenal fan knows what I'm going to say, but we beat Manchester United yeah. at Old Trafford in, uh, I think it was March 14th, 98. Uh, well, March 14th. I know it's March 14th because it was my birthday. Seven, my seven. Oh, there we go. Birthday, yeah. <laughs> Arsenal beat Man United and I was like, uh, yeah, they're going to win the league, which is a relief. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think like we had, we had some games called off. So we were a couple of games. I, I think we were something like six points behind with two games in hand or something. So it was, it was quite close. You know, it was one of those games. We kind of had to win it really. But the momentum was such that once we won that, and, you know, United had Keane injured and Cantona had just retired. And at that game, Schmeichel went up for a corner and he pulled his hamstring going back. And, you know, you, you watch like you're right. Those things happen to your rivals as much as what you're, you're watching, what's happening to you. And you're just like, yeah, this, this is a pendulum and it's massively swinging our way. This is the kind of thing that happens to teams who are going to win the league and what's happening to United. That's the kind of thing that happens to teams who aren't going to win the league. And, and that game was so special as well. We hadn't, we hadn't even scored at Old Trafford, I think for seven or eight years in the build up to that. We'd always just routinely gone there and, and got, gotten tonked. So it felt, it felt like just even in its own right, going to Old Trafford and winning felt special. But it was just the day you knew. And, and we only won 1-0. We should have won 3 or 4-0 um, that day, like utterly dominant. And um, it was at that point, it was really at that point that I thought, yeah, we're doing like they they cannot stop us. Mm. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it, it's one of, uh, yeah, one of my greatest Arsenal memories really that day. Yeah. Well, speaking of Arsenal memories, I was going to ask you which was better. Well, we can add this one into the mix. You can say Old Trafford '98, or was it Old Trafford '02, or White Hart Lane '04? So it's it's difficult to choose between them because they're kind of like winning the league on the ground of your rivals is great fun for obvious reasons. But over the years, I still think it, I, I was at both games in '02 and '04. It's '02 for me, Old Trafford. I just think that Arsenal-Man United rivalry at that time was so intense and so special. 
that to win it there was just, um, I think Martin Tyler said at the, at the end of the game, it does not get any more emphatic than that. And that's, that's just how it felt. And for me, it was just a wonderful memory as well. I was, I was just finishing school and um, I missed an English mock A-level to go to it. Um, and or I did an English degree at university. So that was, that was a, big, a big thing for me to miss. Um, it was my mock A-level, not my actual A-level. Yeah. And um, the head of English time at the time was an Arsenal season ticket holder. And um, the, the kind of the great thing was Arsenal had played their previous game away at Bolton. It had been moved to a Monday night. I bunked school to go to it. And I told school that I had a dentist appointment. They found out that that wasn't true. And obviously, like with with um, my the head of English being an Arsenal season ticket holder, like they knew, you know, they were like, "Look, if you take if you, you take this you day off, glance. you see, like, Bolton yeah. and Old Trafford, he must have probably bumped into you in a concourse or something." It, it's it, it was just look, you know, there's no excuse. You can't invent an orthodontic an orthodontist appointment for this, and it's like a, a mock A level. And I was just like, I, "I'm going. I don't care." And, uh, and so I went and it was actually 18 days before my 18th birthday. So wonderful time of my life for it to happen. I didn't think it would happen because Arsenal got loads of injuries. Henri uh, was injured for this game. Bergkamp got injured. Adams got injured. We already didn't have Perez. And I just remember thinking, United aren't going to let this happen. I thought we had one game left after that. And I thought we'll do it against Everton at home, I'm sure. But United, just they're not going to let this happen. We'll win the league, but they are not going to allow us to win it on their ground. And so, and, and I think United made a massive mistake because they, um, they decided to just try and kick everyone. Um, they didn't really try and play football. Um, which given the players we were missing, I think they'd have had a better chance, but they just decided to try and kick everyone. And, and it didn't work. Like it, it doesn't work when you try and kick Patrick Vieira and Martin Keown and Edu started that night and he was brilliant. And it just, um, it reeked of inferiority. I think it played right into our hands and, and yeah, just an absolutely seismic night. And I just remember getting in the car, going home, the song, uh, one more time by Daft Punk came on the car radio and uh, that, that song will forever remind me of that night. Paul Durkin looks at his watch. History in the making for the club from Highbury. They are the champions. They have taken the title away from Manchester United. And they have done it here at Old Trafford. It does not get more conclusive than that. Sylvain Wiltor's goal. Arsene Wenger's team, every bit as good as the manager's words. He had no doubts. An amazing element of their success, this incredible away record. Not one defeat on their travels. In the modern game, you would think that would be impossible. Maybe that's been the basis of it all. Goal scoring two, finding the net in every game. Yes, Vieira and his manager come together. Fantastic. Down the years, Arsenal have been successful, but not always admired. But up and down the land, you do sense a genuine appreciation for the way this Arsenal team play. And tonight, they were perfect. And I remember like going to school the next day and uh, bumped into uh, my head of English, who, uh, who'd gone to watch the game in the Gunners pub. Um, and 
he was as bleary eyed as I was. And I just remember looking at him and he looked at me and smiled and we didn't say a word. We, we didn't talk about it until the next day, but we didn't, we were just, we just like smiled at each other, but it was just like, yeah, we've been up all night. And, and, and it was just a look that said, it doesn't matter. It's fine. <laughs> like I'm letting you have that one. And it's, yeah, just, just, just a wonderful memory, a, a wonderful time of my life. Yeah. Did you pass your A-level? I, I, I got, I got an A, I got my A. So, you know, yeah, all good. All good in the end. It all worked out really well. Brilliant. I'm, I'm going to let you go soon. We've been talking for a while. I mean, it's been incredibly enjoyable. So I could carry on doing this for hours, but you've got life to get back to. You've got a baby to get back to. But just a few more things. Um, we're going to get onto your all-time 11 soon. Before I do that, I want to ask you one thing, which might, uh, might be a sticky, difficult issue for you, but I think we have to touch on it. Um, Arsenal Fan TV, um, mm. or AFTV as they know now, what are your views on them? So, like... I I find the and I find the level of the antipathy towards them really confusing. Um, I think they've really be, just become a coat, a convenient coat peg for everything mm. um, now, and it's it's almost like a cliche just to kind of blame AFTV or whatever. Look, I'm not silly. I see what it was. I see what it is. I see what it's become, etc. Um, etc. Et but um, you know, look as as a to just to to use a slightly wanky phrase as a content provider myself um there, there's room for everything if people like it and people enjoy it regardless of why they like it or why they enjoy it and it's incredibly popular and it has maintained popularity for a long time who am i to say that that is wrong who am i to say that people shouldn't watch it when clearly lots of people derive some kind of pleasure and entertainment for watching it like you know, nails to the, you know, uh, colors to the mast and all of that. It's not for me. It's not like as a, as a, as a fan, it's not something I really kind of consider a reference point or anything like that, but that's fine. I don't expect, um, you know, I don't expect everyone to like what I like in life. It, it's kind of like having a go at people for watching soap operas. It's just like, what's the point? People enjoy them. Like, and if you don't, that's, that's, that's kind of fine. And I think, um, and like I say, I, I do, you know, I see what the channel's become and it's, and, and yes, it's become more caricatured and I'm sure there's some pressure to do that because um, it's not just an independent fan channel anymore. There are, there are other kind of companies involved and things like that. And that's all, I think that's all fairly natural, um, whether, whether people like it or not. And, it, and it's just, but I, I just think, you know, people are so quick to, to blame it when it's, it's, it's just a YouTube channel. Um, and people really go over the top at what they attach blame for. And, and last season, just I caught a lot of flack for saying this. I just thought it was bizarre that at away games, you know, Arsenal fans started singing Arsenal fan TV, get out of our club. Mm. And I just started thinking like, God, we've just come through like this horrible end of the Wenger era. And I, I feel like um, actually people came to depend on that conflict that it provided and once it was gone, it was almost like they needed something else to fight about. Mm. And so they decided to like put Arsenal fan TV into this space. And I just thought, God, how ridiculous is this? There's 3,000 away fans at Goodison Park for what was admittedly the most boring game ever between Everton and Arsenal just before Christmas. And so, you know, people needed entertainment. But to sing about a YouTube channel, I just thought... Well, this is really, really jumped the shark. So, you know, in short, it, it's not for me and that's fine. Um, there, there is room for 
all types of content and if that's not what you want there are a million other youtube channels and uh and content providers who will give you what you want so i just i just don't understand and i, I think it, it's become like a thing um for people and it's it's something actually i don't think people just think about that deeply they just say oh Austin fan tv is rubbish and it's why things are rubbish and 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 it just isn't it's 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 a popular youtube channel that's all it is yeah i mean i think some arsenal fans believe it's the way non-arsenal fans see the club i mean it absolutely yeah. isn't. you know i i know it's not I, I know they they're a section of arsenal fans but there's hundreds and thousands and millions of other Arsenal fans and they represent just one small pocket of it. And I actually have a lot of sympathy with them. I mean, I, I'm, I'll be honest, I used, when I first started watching Arsenal fan TV, it was completely to laugh at them. And yeah, so, yeah. You know, I'd seen the little clips doing around on social media, all the rants. But actually, when you watch it, yeah, there are a lot of rants. It does get a bit silly. Yeah, yeah. But they also talk a lot of sense as well. You know, they, yeah, yeah. You know, they have some genuinely really good discussions about the state of the club. And I think just because they're outside the ground shouting a bit, people think they're all idiots. But actually... You know, a lot yeah. of them know what they're saying and know what they're talking about. They follow the club. They love the club. Yeah, and, and Robbie talks to everyone. Mm. Um, okay, so, yeah, the, the channel promotes, um, you know, I guess, quote-unquote characters who are, who, who, you know, who are part of the channel now, so why not? Um, but Robbie talks to everyone, um, I promise you. Um, you know, y you go to the Emirates two hours after the game. Robbie's still there. Excellent, Tim. Right, let's get on to your Arsenal all-time eleven. Um, mm. Very interesting team. Some obvious picks, but some, um, well, one in particular I want to ask you about. But let's get on to it. So it's, I should stress again, this is all-time 11 based on players Tim has seen play. So it's not Arsenal's all-time 11. It's Tim Stillman's all-time Arsenal 11. 4-4-2 in goal, David Seaman. Back four, Bakri Sanya, Sol Campbell, Tony Adams and Ashley Cole. Midfield, David Rocastle, of course. Patrick Vieira, Cesc Fabregas and Robert Pires. And up front, Dennis Burkamp and Thierry Henry. Um, I think the one that really stands out for me, Tim, is Sanya. Um, I would have mm. thought you'd have gone with Lauren, maybe even Lee Dixon. Um, why, why does Sanya get in? I, I loved Bakri Sanya. I absolutely loved Bakri Sanya. And maybe it's because he played in teams that weren't quite as successful. I felt he was a champion in a, in a team that just didn't quite match his kind of mentality. I think he was better than Lauren. I loved Lauren, but I think he was better. It's just Lauren played in a better team. Mm. I just, particularly at the time, I think Sanya played when perhaps Arsenal didn't have enough of those kind of real fighters in the team. Sanya was one of those. And Sanya, he played every week and he played exactly the same way. And, you know, at the end of the 2013 4 14 season, uh, his last season at Arsenal, he, you know, he had the agreement to go to City uh, well before the end of that season, but he still fought for absolutely everything. And my favourite Arsenal picture ever is on the pitch after the 2014 Cup final, his final game for Arsenal, what a way to go out. And it's just Arsene Wenger kissing him on the head. He's on his knees. Uh, I think he's praying. Um, or at least his, his hands are kind of prostrate as if, he's, as if he is. And Wenger's just giving him a kiss on the head. And, you know, Wenger knew he was going for months before. But that to me said, you know, and, and Sanya was there for like, you know, a period where we didn't win something for quite a long while. And that to me, that just that little quiet moment sometimes you see between a manager and a player where it's just like, thanks for sticking with me. Like, thanks for sticking with this where not everyone did. 
um and you know and forgiving your all uh, all the way through this and and yeah and and i guess the, the moment that would stick out for me for bakary sanya he scored a header against spurs the first time we beat them 5-2 and arsenal were 2-0 down and bakary sanya pops up in you know 8 yards out from goal and heads one in and it was just the most um you know balls to this header I've ever seen it was just we were 2-0 down at home to Tottenham and it was just he'd come forward from right back and it was just a no I'm not accepting this this is not happening today it was just one of those real you know like moments that you get from a leader from a proper yeah. warrior and uh, and yeah and I, I loved him as a player I thought he was a superb underrated player but I loved the character more and um, yeah just just big you know, just a guy who, who I feel like gave me a, a lot of happiness and very consistent at a time when Arsenal were anything but. Yeah. And Anders Limpard doesn't make the team. You said earlier he's your all-time favourite Arsenal yeah. player. I heard that right. Um, is it just yeah. that Robert Pires is just a better player and, and, and is yeah. he? Yeah, yeah. It, it really is as simple as that. Like, I'd love to have put um, Anders in there, but... Um, he, yeah, it's just you can't leave Perez out. It's as simple as that. Perez, he's one of the best players Arsenal have ever had. And look, um, I don't put Perez in reluctantly. Loved him as a player. Still love him. Um, someone who clearly still loves Arsenal. I mean, we can't get rid of him. He's still at the training <laughs> ground every day. Um, he, he bought one of the flats at Highbury. Um, wow. You know, he, he, he has a flat there. Like, he, he's someone who you wouldn't have expected to buy into a club like Arsenal because his family's Spanish and Portuguese and he turned down Real Madrid and, and he just really got Arsenal as well. But he was just a wonderful footballer. And yeah, I, ju- I, ju- I just couldn't fit Anders in there. If it was um, like my favourite Arsenal eleven, then Anders would be the first name on the team sheet. But I just couldn't leave Perez out. Yeah. Um, I said Burkham and Henri up front, which is absolutely fair enough and is the reason Ian Wright doesn't get in. We haven't spoken about Dennis Burkham yet. We probably haven't got time to, to talk about him properly because just how good he was. We could talk about him for hours. So I'll just quickly ask you, the Newcastle goal, is that the best goal you've seen by an Arsenal player? It is, but the, the weird thing about it was that I was in the ground, but anyone that's ever been to Newcastle as an away fan will know that... Um, you know, you're up in the gods, really. And the goal was scored at the other end of the stadium. So I was about three miles away from it, I think. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't appreciate what a brilliant goal it was. Because from where I was, it looked like he got a lucky deflection somewhere. And then all of a sudden, I just had people texting me um, who never text me, who aren't Arsenal fans, never text me during Arsenal games. But, you know, makes someone that support Millwall and Palace just saying, wow, what a goal that was. And I was like, Really? so much so that you're texting me during this game. Um, and so I didn't, and, and, you know, again, back then, no Twitter, no kind of way to look at the clip. Um, it's Newcastle. So I got home too late for match of the day and it was 5.30 kickoff. So I didn't actually see it till the next day um, properly. But um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I guess it's one of those caveats. It is definitely the best goal I have seen and been in the stadium to see. And it would take a hell of a lot to surpass that. But I kind of didn't see it at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's literally indescribable in the sense that I can watch that goal. And then if someone's like turns TV off and go, right, describe what he did. I've forgotten. I have to go back and watch it again because it's just yeah. so complicated what he does. The touch around, is it Dabby's ass, I think. And then he takes it around. Is it Andy O'Brien? I can't quite remember. It's just so, it's, it's like I'm literally like no goal I've ever seen before or since. It's just a remarkable technique. And he, and he did mean yeah. it, as, he's, as he said, and as he clearly meant to do. 
yeah and if if you watch it again like one of the things um it's not just the execution um that gets me it it's the thought like put yeah. yourself in that position you've got your back to goal 25 yards from goal Perez drills the ball really hard into him with his back to goal how in that quarter of a second between Perez doing that and him having his back to goal like how did he think of that not let alone how did he do it like what what happened in his brain to make him think, yeah, this is what I'm going to do, actually. Um, so to me, the, like the fact that he pulled it off is not quite secondary, but the fact that he thought of it, that, that to me is the essence of Bergkamp as a player. Tim, you've been absolutely amazing. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you the question I'm going to, I, I'm going to end every episode of this podcast on, um, which is if Arsenal could give you one thing in the next five years, and it has to be realistic, so I know all you have got 8-0 win over Tottenham, uh, what would you ask for? Uh, you blew me away with realistic there, because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the Champions League. It's the only thing. I, it's the only thing I want. I've seen everything else. Um, I just, <laughs> I just want us like to win. Next five years, maybe. If you get, if you get um, good now, if you get good now, you could get one in the next five years, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in the next five years, I, I just think to be like a sensible football club again we've been a bit of a basket case with the end of you know the Wenger era dragged on too long and then there was some upheaval after that and we didn't quite appoint the right people either as coaches or executives or anything like that and I, I just want Arsenal to be like a serious football club again and I think we've got the right coach for that uh, whether we've got the right executive layer at the club for that, I think remains to be seen. But I just want Arsenal to kind of compete. Um, you know, I don't expect us to win the league um, or anything like that. And, we, and we've still been winning cups in the last few years. So I don't have that much to complain about. I just, I just want Arsenal to be... I don't want them to make stupid decisions anymore. I don't want to have to pay Henrik Mkhitaryan to go away and... <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. give like Mesut Ozil a million pounds a week. Like I just, I just don't want any more of that. I just want Arsenal to become like a sensible, serious football club again and not, um, you know, to use modern vernacular, a meme. Um, I'm fairly confident that that's happening and that we're kind of coming out of the other side of, uh, of the Wenger, of the kind of post-Wenger era, I guess, with Arteta. So I'm, I'm really enthused about that. But yeah, I, I just want us, you know, to see us make, you know, good, sensible transfer purchases, smart sales, and just try and build ourselves up again um, as a serious football club. That's a very realistic and a very reasonable request, I think. Arsenal absolutely yes. should be giving you that next five years. Tim Stillman, thank you very, very much. My absolute pleasure. Oh, okay. Okay, 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 okay.